0: Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today we have a special program. In just a moment, I will give an official introduction, but we have Stuart Pym, who has been on the program before, and he has brought his counterpart, associate buddy uh, from South Africa. They are working together on some conservation efforts there. Just a moment, Rudy Van Arndt and Stuart Pym will be with us, and I'll give a more detailed, informal introduction of them. But I am your host, Carol Murphy, and (laughs) Daniel Hogan is in the studio in just a moment. We will be back with Rudy and Stuart. Also, remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com, and we're on social media. So please reach out, uh, especially if you'd like to be a guest or have some comments about a show that you've listened to. In just a moment, we will be back with Rudy and Stuart. Thanks for listening. Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And uh, today, I'm so happy that you're listening and that you're here. It's a special day on Heartstock. We have two guests today, which is kind of unusual in and of itself. Rudy Van Arndt, he is the Emeritus Professor of Zoology Chair, Conservation Ecology Research Unit, University of Pretoria. And uh, he's speaking with us from South Africa, We'll ask some more questions about that here in just a moment. And Stuart Pym, who is our former guest, he's the founder of Saving Nature, extraordinary professor of that same conservation ecology research unit, University of Pretoria. And he's also the Doris Duke Professor of Conservation. Um, And that's of course at at Duke University. Hi Stuart and Rudy, how are you?
1: We're well, how How are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> most good excellent afternoon.
2: yes <laughs> good evening.
0: well it is you are eight hours i think we figured this out you are eight hours ahead of us so it is a, a beautiful morning here we're having a lot of smoke because of our drought in forest fires but um aside from that it's a beautiful morning here what's it like there in south africa rudy and and where are you speaking with us from i am sitting in at my office, or in my office here in
2: Pretoria, where we have the first day of spring out here. Not officially, but as far as the weather is concerned, for sure. The first day of spring and the end of what we consider a long winter.
0: Is that the dry season there um, that you're coming out of yeah. and going into a wet season?
2: Yes, Pretoria's at the southern edge of the African savannas, and it therefore has rain only in summer. Our rains start in October and goes through to April, and then we have a dry period from May to September, October, Mm. depending on climate and climatic conditions. But in general, that pattern is fixed.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about you, Stirr? Where, where are you speaking with us from?
1: Well, I'm sitting outside in, in what I call my garden. It's actually the woods at the back of my house. Um, and having had two weeks of blisteringly hot weather, today is just a gorgeous um, day. It's not too hot, the, the humidity has dropped. Um, so I'm sitting out surrounded by, by my trees and I'm feeling very happy.
0: What I was hoping we could start out with is just a little discussion because uh, we've had, and I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to Stuart's program from before, which you can find both on the KBMF website and the Heartstock Radio site. So, Rudy, let's start out with you. How did you become Professor Emeritus at Pretoria?
2: I suppose I grew old.
0: (laughs) We're lucky, right, if we get to do that.
1: (laughs) Better
2: than the alternative.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) I uh, started my university career about 48 or 49 years ago. Maybe No, 50 years ago. Yes, 50. When things were very flowery and we just became aware of the global crisis of us losing species or species being threatened, we be lost in mankind as I entered my first year at university. So, all of around us, the bowls were pulling and the, the doom and gloom period started off. Today, 50 years later, we know that the doom and gloom was not just a prediction, but a reality,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was a good fortune that about twenty years into my career, that I met Stuart uh, some way in Europe at a conference, and that our kind of buddyship started, with a common interest in conservation, and it has flourished ever since. I will not go into details how I became a professor because that's a very tall and long story Mm
1: -hmm.
2: of a night in the Kalahari Desert with my then professor and his strange behavior, but actually said I decided that night that yes, it would be a good thing to be a professor of Mm zoology if I can be lucky.
0: and the, the primary um, species, if I'm understanding correctly, that you are uh, really working together uh, to conserve is elephants. Is that correct?
2: Our focus has been on elephants for the last 25 years. And it would be a pity if we can't continue this for another 50 years. Because I think after 25 years and efforts, not only our own, but those of many, many other groups and scientists, we slowly but surely understand why the elephant makes up about 80 to 90% of the of the wildlife biomass in terrestrial savannas. Why it is so charismatic and why what happens to elephants that take what happens to many other species out there. So to us it's not just a symbol, it's actually an agent through which we are getting to understand the symbols better.
0: Mm. Yes, and we're, which we're all connected,
2: we huh? Take care of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Stuart, uh, is there anything that you'd like to add about how you and Rudy began working together?
1: Uh, yes. I first met Rudy, as he said, at a, at a meeting in Budapest. Um, and he invited me to come to South Africa. Like many scientists, I avoided engaging uh, South Africa during the apartheid years. But um, Nelson Mandela had just come to power, and I was thrilled to take Rudy's uh, opportunity to go there. Almost the first full day we had was at a meeting in Kruger National Park. And we were meeting with uh, with the scientific staff there. And one of the projects that um, a consultant was trying to impose upon them was to put the female elephants in Kruger on the pill, on contraceptives to stabilize the numbers. And I thought that was the most fool idea that I had <laughs> ever heard of um, and calculated um, just how many elephants you'd have to put on the pill. Turned out to be about 4,000 female elephants, which was not even remotely possible. Uh-huh. Um, and the upshot of that was that Rudy and I started working together on on looking at how we could, uh, as it were, give elephants freedom to roam. That elephants were imprisoned behind the the fences of Kruger National Park. Um, And we needed elephants to be able to move between Kruger and particularly the adjacent areas of, of, of Mozambique. And so, As Rudy says, while most of the papers we write are on elephants, we've written some on lions and we've written some on various kinds of antelopes, um, elephants are the key because they are the key to reconnecting the the, the pieces of Africa. That uh, the elephant populations are scattered, they are fragmented, and we need to work out ways of reconnecting those populations so, that when there's too many elephants in one area, they can spill over into another area. If an area has too few, those populations can be rescued from elsewhere.
0: And I'm, <clears throat> I'm really wondering the, the challenges that you've faced doing that. I mean, how has this work evolved into recent history? I I would imagine that you've learned a lot over time. I've just recently been listening to Alan Savory's book on grassland management and desertification. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, whoever would like to go first it would be awesome.
2: Yes. Uh, I think uh, Alan's approach and, and philosophy is is exciting and interesting and insightful. But here in Africa, what he has done in Zimbabwe many years ago, it all dissolved into speculation, and speculation that awaits a scientific proof. That is the big thing of that approach. But then again, I am in his pay. I have to say, that all good science probably starts off as an idea and speculations and then await that as a test of good science to actually support what you are thinking or saying. I think but the elephant thing is far removed from that in as far as that we had the good fortune of about 25 years of relatively hard and fun work to get to a point Boy, we could say that this idea that we have, we have a way to test it. We are offering a solution. Our idea is not unique. We don't have copyright in it. It has been promoted even back in the days of creating or establishing the Kruger National Park, for instance started off as loose fragments of protected areas, which more than 100 years ago were tied together, that were connected, which through those actions allowed the elephant population to increase from things of animals to thousands. So we had some of the ecological processes being reactivated By yielding the land, but we got to a point where that was no longer satisfying the conservation authorities, and was soon to learn that simply even if we think of Kruger at that time as twenty thousand square kilometres, in other words, half the size of our poisoned Denmark. We think of that as a big area, when it comes to 10,000 elephants, it's a small area. When it comes to the variety of land and living conditions, it's not catering for all this. And we have to think of how can we best extend that to actually cater for it in such a way that the animal numbers in itself will be limited by the processes that takes place on the right skill landscape. The extension of that race, then, of course, to go from Krua on and do it for the rest of Africa. And that's really where we are now, where we are trying, working in this way. And it's something operational that will stretch from South Africa to the horn of Africa and Kenya that will connect elephants from South Africa and Mozambique, with those in Zimbabwe and with those in Botswana, Namibia, up in Zambia, across Uganda, parts of Tanzania, and right into the Horn of Africa, into Kenya, where this kind of pipeline now could be a reality in 50 years uh, from now or even sooner, but there's more to it also this kind of thing we need in Africa, and that is having a common goal that makes sense. Now, common goals in Africa is to to develop this part of the world so that it is part of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I, and I know Stuart also, firmly believe we can do this, is not to technology or through economies of some sort, but it is to conservation at the right scale because all of the world is sensitive and all of the world benefit from us being successful in avoiding extinction, yeah. for us being successful in providing a variety of life to the world that Africa still has, and I can carry on at this level, but I should draw a map. I think I say what I wanted <laughs> to convey.
1: I, I totally agree what Rudy said. I think um, South Africa has an extraordinary um, leadership role to play um, in Africa and indeed across many, many other countries in the world because of its recent history. And uh, particularly when it comes to conservation, South Africa has set aside uh, extraordinary areas uh, as, as protected areas as national parks. And it's working with its neighbors now, with Mozambique, uh, with uh, Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, to establish areas that are the most spectacular places for wildlife you know, on the planet. The area that encompasses where those countries come together on the Zambezi is the most spectacular area for wildlife on the planet. It's an extraordinary place. And that kind of leadership, I think, feeds very much into what the nations of the world are talking about as they go into the Convention on Biological Diversity, which um, is, is meeting later this year. The The heads uh, of uh, of states will meet this year, and I think other groups will meet early next year in in, in Kunming in China. One of the key things about what the post-2020 global biodiversity framework entails is this notion of protecting more of the land and especially connecting it. We need to be able to connect the pieces together. Even large areas like Kruger are, are too small for animals like elephants we need to work out ways in which we can we can have connectivity this resonates with the united states where we have you know y2y the yellowstone to yukon initiative that wants to make sure that there is connectivity across the western united states so this is an idea i think where south africa's leadership is is vitally important
0: and i was hoping that we could talk about the state of elephants we've all heard the heartbreaking and gut-wrenching stories of um, not just loss of habitat but poaching and war-torn areas where certain subspecies have evolved without tusks which seems to be helping their numbers can you talk a little bit about where exactly are we is it getting better or are we not making headway
2: i think it's the very region-specific. You have to think of Africa when you think of Africa. It's, it's kind of a huge place. You can um, ele- stewarded it elegantly some years ago. You can fit the USA easily into southern Africa alone. The countries that Africa is a huge continent. And what happens to elephants in West Africa and Central Africa, where we mainly have the forest elephant, is very different to what happens in East Africa, where we have the savanna elephant. And that, again, is very different to what happens in Southern Africa, where we have also the savanna elephant. But the important thing to note here is that in Southern Africa, of South Africa, Mozambique, Namibia, Botswana, and Zambia and Zimbabwe, those countries on their own at present have 70% of all Sabana elephants living here. Only 20% reside in East Africa, and the remaining 10% in West and Central Africa at the at the perimeter. Of where the so you can just think for yourself. So, Southern Africa is the heartland of savanna elephants. The interesting thing in Southern Africa, in spite of all the doom and gloom messages, is that touching is not touching up elephant, That is, is not as yet a serious threat. And it has never been, except for northern Mozambique and southern Tanzania. Tanzania, according to some, southern Africa, according to others, east Africa. Uh, geographically, it's actually both, because it, it extends over from south to the east. But the point is, here in southern Africa, collectively, where well, 70%, that is 300,000 savannah elephants. The numbers for the last 24 years have been stable. We have places where we have declines and places where we have increases. But collectively, Southern Africa's elephant population is stable. Mm-hmm. East Africa have been on the increase, but in the last, two years again on the decrease. West and Central Africa, that's the year and the Congo, Gabon and all those countries, where we have lost nearly 60% of sparse elephants over the last eight years.
1: Wow.
2: Alone. Mm. That is what big major onslaught is. So to think of Africa with losing elephants, yes, it's true, but it's not true for all of Africa. Southern Africa, where Stuart and I is actually focusing our attention on elephants, is actually relatively stable. And that provides a wonderful platform from which to operate.
1: Mm -hmm. And Stuart, let, let me just elaborate a little bit because people are always surprised by how large Africa is. Yeah. Um. Africa is three times larger uh, than the lower 48 states. So you can fit the 48 states and Europe uh, into just Savannah, Africa, not the Sahara, not the forest. So it's a huge area. And, and so, as Rudy says, it, you can't generalize. West Africa is losing its wildlife, even in its protected areas. Whereas, you know, Southern Africa, you know, needs to be complemented on broadly doing a good job.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about, we've got about four minutes left, uh, what the future holds and your, your vision of connecting all of
1: the elephant habitats? Ludi, um, let me go first and then I'll let you have the last word. I am very optimistic. We have many, many hundreds of satellite transmitters on our elephants. We now have an extraordinarily good idea of where they go, where they can go. And I'm optimistic that we can work out practical solutions that will enable managers to enhance the connectivity of the the wild areas of Southern Africa.
2: Rudy? I see a future way economists that drives politics in the world and economists and politicians will eventually hold hands with us to celebrate and support biodiversity conservation with the emblem of the elephant as something that people can visualize and that people do appreciate throughout the world for if we do that then Africa will have a very, very fair place in global society. That's where I see our future lies.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it it does seem to be all interconnected, you know, political mindsets and uh, wars, peace, economies, all of those interplay and affect our future and the future of wildlife. But specifically, the economy, I mean, that seems to be the driver for the poaching, you know, people living in po- poverty and being kind of desperate. Is that is that a true picture?
2: No, please allow me to say no on this. Elephant poaching and also rhino poaching are driven by criminal networks. Those are international conglomerates. That are extremely powerful that affects every bit of lives of people throughout the world. They are the people involved in the smuggling of children, the smuggling of weapons, the drug trades. They are all but all in the same business. And the actual purchasing problem is a problem of international criminal Mm syndicates, and there's very good work published in very good journals that point this out as really the essence of the question problem. Mm -hmm. It is not poverty that is the essence.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. The offers and the manipulation of poor people by these extremely wealthy and indiscriminate bands that hmm. operate.
0: Well, oh. I would love to talk more about that, and maybe we can have both of you back and we can delve into that some more. But in the meantime, how might our listeners find you uh, if they'd like to learn more?
2: I see HTTP to slash and up dot shall I repeat Zero. dot dot or they can merely simply put the silly or this wonderful name I have, Rudy van Aden, on Google and they will get to this. Yes. And to me. Yes. And do my purpose, and we'll uh,
0: yeah, we'll also put a link to you on
1: our podcast, and and how about you, Stuart? Oh, I'm easy. Um, just contact savingnature.earth,
0: mm. and thanks to both of you for sharing your stories here on Heartstock. I'm just thrilled and appreciate the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you, Carol. Thank you,
1: Stuart. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Carol. It's been wonderful to talk to you again.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Heartstock. We'll see you again next week. Peace.
1: Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Here are programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.
2: I saw a
0: sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on the other side.